Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. You know, there's a lot of uh, underground brilliance in the world, uh, people that should be famous but uh, are not yet famous, and I get to know many of them. And um, one of one of the these people that just as brilliant is my friend and uh, and someone that I mentor and support and coaching uh, is a awesome person named Gareth Gwynn. And Gareth is the founder of an organization or a company called Let's See Labs. And they change the way your team sees each other uh, by activating empathy, team engagement, and curiosity through this programmatic and experiential um, content that is delivered. And you, you'll, I'll link to her website uh, below. She's also the author of a book that I got to read the adva- an advanced copy of called uh, You Are Us, and it's a about um, building bridges in a polarized world through what she calls self-liberation, and uh, it's it takes these various stories from vilified people like a jihadist or a gang member, a white supremacist, and it, and it shows that there is a type of polarity that can be activated through conversation and be activated through through empathy. And so welcome, Gareth. That's a long setup to say welcome, but I wanted to give people some context. So yeah, thank you, Justin. I really appreciate it. And I feel grateful to have so much resonance around some of these, you know, the the missions that we're pursuing in terms of bringing more human-centered and empathy into teamwork and workplaces as well. Yeah, it struck me early on in our friendship that you are definitely a third way thinker. And, you know, on one end of this concept of polarity is the kind of denialism, like there's, or, you know, where it's like people that aren't aware of privilege, um, of their privilege. Um, and, uh, you know, on a political spectrum, spectrum, that probably is more right wing, but not always. And then you got the other, the opposite of that, which is the sort of over fragility, over sensitivity that people think can be fixed through DEI initiatives. And you and your ideas with Let's See Labs and your book present a third way that you call creative polarity, which is our our topic today. So I'm curious. So just from a, I mean, I know the answer to this, but just for the listeners, how did, when did you first begin to examine tension and polarity amongst peoples? When did that first become something that you started to pursue? Yeah, I would say a combination of a couple things. One is noticing a pattern of continuous, relentless curiosity around nonviolent activists in the world. So more the traditional archetypes being like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., but then also some of the less known ones as well, and just being not even having a reason, but just fascinated by what and how and when these people were actually drawn and called into this work and what that looked like in society. And then it wasn't just, you know, a spiritual thing that was sort of floating and detached, but it was like very grounded in in, in addressing the critical issues that are, you know, perpetuating suffering today. And so that has been a relentless curiosity ever since I can remember in my life. And then I would say the second piece was catalyzed by my own suffering by actually looking inward and saying, wait, what, wh- why and how do I feel the way that I do? And how could I actually, you know, 
pursue my own liberation from being held captive by and feeling gripped that emotions control my life or external circumstances control my life, but instead finding what would it look like to actually have that spaciousness, that sovereignty of my emotion. And so I'd say that was a catalyst too. And that, that was probably um, maybe like 10 years ago now that it really actually took a fork in the road in that way. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting how that intrinsic and extrinsic view led to kind of a systemic structuring. Yeah. It's like you looked at your inner world, you looked at the outer world, and then you have this gift of recognizing patterns and, and elo- being very eloquent about sharing ideas that are, um, you know, almost like philosophical frameworks, but in a very practical way. Um, and it reminds me of the work that, um, Virginia does through through massive what she calls becoming indomable, which is the mindset that she's says is a level of consciousness for history shapers, like like positive history shapers, like the some of the ones you mentioned. And critical mind is the number one trait that she talks about. And I see a lot of um, similarities in your work of this idea of being able to observe yourself, um, being able to hold two ideas at the same time. Um, which I can't remember the philosopher said that's a sign of intelligence. Um, and and I think what's 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 also interesting is that um, around the time that this episode will post, I'm going to be posting also my essay of the week, which is called going to be called the erotic life. And erotic is a word that's sort of misunderstood. I love how you have taken this idea of tension and maybe take even taken like David Dida's polarities and you've made it a like a team dynamic component that you now take out and work with organizations and companies and teams to change the way, like I said at the beginning, how they see each other. Um, but the point of it is to be creative. The point of it is to be innovative. It's just not to make nice. It's to actually go do something with it, to convert it to actionable energy. And I think that's what makes this 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 book that you wrote and your your approach with Let's See Labs so fascinating because that's what we need. You know, we don't all just need to get along. That's true. But we we also need to create. We need to innovate. We got a shit ton of problems to solve. And we're not going to solve them by being divided, especially falsely divided through, you know, old institutional mental colonizations type stuff. So there's my editorial. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And what's coming up for me hearing you share that is how you know, you were saying holding two ideas that are seemingly in conflict, but really embracing both that they don't, there's, there's, they're not mutually exclusive and serve each other in a way that actually challenges and promotes this, um, what we've been referring to as could be called tension, if we call it between, between people or just polarity, you know, the electromagnetism, you know, and so that actually being able to embrace that, then Oh, if we can hold those two, then what's the emergent property of the relationship between them? And then we're holding three, which, you know, could be the third way. And and, and that was actually in relationship to how those two had an interplay on each other. And that emergent property becoming something creative, something fresh, something new that never could exist if these two hadn't interacted. In, in right. when I say if they hadn't interacted in a way that embraced each other and moved toward to leverage that tension instead of avoiding it or turning away from it. And I think that that's where that self-awareness piece comes in, where what is it that would hold us back from turning towards that tension? And I think that's, yeah. that's an important piece in terms of how we can actually step into this. 
Yeah, well said. And I think that leads well into our first question that we're both going to answer, which is, why has tension been so stigmatized? Uh, where do you think that comes from, that we would approach tension as a problem to solve rather than a energy to harness or convert? Yeah, you know, it, it, it brings up a curiosity for me around noticing that there, there tends to be a hierarchy of emotions where I would rather feel joy than feel sad, uh, you know, and, and I would rather, instead of being angry, I would rather be feeling energetic or free. And so I, I wonder about um, the value base that we put on different states of being that we can then label as emotions and sort of uh, begin to avoid an entire world of just very raw, real, natural human emotions that, that aren't inherently negative. And so by avoiding them, we're actually only accessing a small portion of our potential. And in that moment, when we feel something in the external world, maybe it's a teammate, a colleague, a family member that activates us, that would slide us in to bring up that any emotion that we have, you know, oppressed within our own system, then we we're not going to go there. We're going to avoid it. We're going to say, no, I don't want to feel that way. I'd rather feel this way. And we're, we're not using our potential. We're not embracing our wholeness and we're not embracing and listening to actually the wisdom that is coming through us. That's being activated through our emotion. So I think that um, mm -hmm. part of it is, is avoidance. And I think that that makes sense because people when we are not actually able to feel our emotions and process our grief or, and healthily embrace things like rage, they do have consequences. And there is an interdependent reality where we can hurt and harm and impact each other. And so once it, it's, we, we have to learn actually how to use healthfully all these emotions and grieve and, and, and be angry in ways that serve the deeper care that's energizing that anger and channel it in ways that actually, um, you know, that, that produce the byproduct where the care is a component and it's not just impulsivity. And I think transitioning to be able to actually work with our emotions like that is really important. Otherwise, the consequences are real and therefore the tension then does actually create harm or hurt or avoidance. And so therefore it would be stigmatized. Oh, we don't want that. Get it out of here. And so it just, you know, then, then we begin to imagine a world, but then that world is only half of a human world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's brilliant. Um, that, I, that all resonates with me. I, I think that I would add to that, that, you know, sometimes I've said this, that cultures, whether they be teams, companies, societies, are often a set of lies that everyone's agreed to. And I think that if you are not operating from a place of honesty, both self-honesty and honesty to others, it creates a tension that is then you see this in like uh, fables, like uh, the emperor with no clothes as an example of that, or Jesus pointing out the, the hypocrisy of the uh, ruling class, religious class of, of, of his days, and you know, many other examples. And I, I view tension as an opportunity for a conversation unless there's a power structure and the people in charge view tension as something to be suppressed. It's a, it's a sign of suppression. And um, this is why, like in, in the United States, I'm pro-protester, like whatever you want to protest. I don't care if I agree with you or not. And as long as you're not damaging property, you should protest because it's a healthy way to express and alleviate tension around an idea. Um, I also think that 
um, to your point too, that we have, we, we, we have created a society in the United States, particularly that is cult cultureless. We don't really have a culture. There's no American culture. We, so there's like a surface sort of entertainment culture and there's a lifestyle, but there's no deep roots unless you're a person with some, you know, ethnicity or, or you come from um, a background that has a deep root system. And I think lack of identity of who you are oh, makes you over, like, misunderstand. Um, sorry, <laughs> because we don't edit, I don't know if you it caught, the mic caught it, but the, there's an ice storm here and the branches are breaking off the trees and it sounds like artillery shells. Oh, anyway, funny. I think that there's a, I think that I'll put it this way. I think that most people, especially men of my generation and up, do not understand their own emotions. And that produces a type of tension that is then without consciousness alleviated through the use of power, that they would rather use power to not feel something that's uncomfortable um, and as opposed to sitting with themselves and going, oh, this is the way I feel the way I feel. This is the honesty of what I feel. Um, and I think that's where all the stigmat stigmatization of it comes in. So. Yeah, and I can feel that it makes sense that if we don't have feedback loops within our community culture that help us know how to feel, what it looks like to feel, what it means to feel in community, then feeling just becomes this sort of strange thing that's like, did I feel that emotion or did I not? I don't know. I can't tell. And it's instead of actually a, a natural movement that's that could possibly right. be happening all the time. And so right. the 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 status quo for many socialized types of identities is actually to avoid feelings. And in some cases, right. it's not necessarily that it's wanted to. It's I think that there's a um, an innocence in the sense of not even really knowing how or seeing that modeled and being able to turn towards it. And that that pain, processing pain without suffering is actually something that needs to be cultivated. It's a it's yeah. a it's a skill that needs purposeful, deliberate attention like meditation in order to learn to allow that that movement through the body. Yeah, and and you look at indigenous cultures and their use of drumming, ecstatic dance, even even war um, was a way to ex to release and express what would otherwise be traumatizing. So, for example, it, with with Native American populations up until the late 1800s, there was no known record of an indigenous person committing suicide. Yet they'd seen horrific things and lost to you know, smallpox and cholera and violent, other forms of violence, they saw an, an elimination of their culture. But the mechanism of the of that sort of baseline ability to process hard emotions, um, you know, was there's there's a lot of lessons there, um, yeah. which leads into this idea of processing and conversion of what we're, what you're calling polarity rather than tension, which I love that because I think it rather than argue with people about why tension's okay, we're saying, no, there's a polarity and that's normal. That's what the yin and the yang is, the masculine, and the feminine, yada, yada. Um, but why is polarity necessary for creativity? So why is that? Yeah, polarity. Well, I, you know, I like this phrase that life resides in the tension between two poles. And I think that 
that polarity is upholding matter, biology, the structure of form. And so it's just inherently part of our fabric. It's here. It's it's what we're swimming in. And so it's not something you really, you, you can try to avoid it, but it's going to come back in some form or another. And so if we can actually expand, like expand the way that we can reach each poles and, and, uh, and really embrace the contrast that each pole has, and that can be the contrast of emotion, the contrast of, you know, experience, the contrast of what we would, what would in society present as divided issues or conflicting aspects of our socialized identities and community. And if we can actually embrace that, then by doing that, we're actually leveraging and helping diversity work for us for creative outcomes. And so that that is a, an emergent property we could never have had before if we didn't have the relationship between those two. So creativity in itself is a byproduct of actually being able to embrace the seemingly opposing forces of two different poles. Yeah. The actual creation of art is tension too. It's the, it's the um, bow against the, the string against the bow, the finger plucking the guitar string, the, the brush, the pencil against the canvas. That's all tension points. That's all physics. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it's the natural state of things being made. Even the, even in spiritual terms of the, you know, the, 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 the classic um, Christian Trinity, the, you know, the, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, where the spirit was the feminine and the feminine and the masculine represented by the father created the son. Um, and that was a type of creative tension that, that is their creative polarity. I think, you know, David Dida in his books, and especially the way of the superior man talk about how polarity is so necessary within romantic or intimate relationships is that if you have two people of the same poles, they can be buddies, but there's not that, you know, sexual tension and a healthy sexual tension between them. And in energetic terms, sacral, sacral, sexual, creative, it's all the same thing. It's a type of energy. It's the energy of movement, the energy of expression, the energy of creativity. And I think that this is why you see in a totalitarian or authoritarian societies, the art, there is an absence of art, partially because they arrest all the artists <laughs> typically but there is an absence of there's an absence or or a or a homogenization of art I should say, um, and in vibrant societies you see art as a um, as a as a as a as a steady a steady expression often used to uh, point out the inconsistencies to point out the hypocrisies art being a form of doing that um, and. I think within someone within your own self, this 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 polarity is really to me the polarity between the mind or the ego and the soul. That if you can get those dancing, you're mm-hmm. going to create amazing things. I am I am certain that's where innovation comes from is this dance between ego and soul, mm-hmm. because you can see with people that are very innovative when they lose their polarity and they become way too ego based, they lose their ability to innovate. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes away because you need that polarity to be creative, to be innovative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I feel what you're saying. And I, one thing that comes up for me hearing that too, is just that, you know, we talk about building bridges in a polarized world and sort of what you're pointing to here also is building bridges within ourselves. It's building bridges between the aspects of us that are not necessarily, you know, 
integrated into our, our awareness and the way that we move through expression. And that masculine and feminine is, yeah, that, that is something we can experience with self and other, but it's also something self and self. It's also something I'm, I actually am embracing my masculine and feminine in a way that I'm not looking outside to have somebody else compensate that for me. And I can lean into a, a, part of myself that feels more natural and embrace someone else's complimentary part, but not in a way that is um, needing them to bring a part of me that I can't already feel in myself. Um, they can yes. help dance and activate, but it's not something that they can, that they're giving me that I don't already have. And so yes. that, that polarity is ultimately just inside of us. And so that if I'm doing that, like you said, and I'm embracing the different poles on all the different nodes that are extended out of that, then as I show up in relationship and I'm doing projects and collaborating on teams, then I'm, I'm more of a yes to everything that's happening. And that doesn't mean I have to agree with it all, but it means when I say no, my no is owned, it's clean and simple and clear. And it's not generating an impulsivity that results in sort of those disowned negative consequences of avoided tension. Right. Yes. Well said. Um, which speaking of self and self leads us to our last question, which is you use a term in, in the book and in your, you know, in your language around this concept of self inquiry. Um, what, what is that and how does it, um, how, where does someone start? So someone's listening to this, this, and they're like, I like these ideas and I want to examine myself and my ideas. And I want to, you know, how does what is self inquiry? How does someone start, or where does someone start? Yeah, so I I think there's infinite ways, and one way that I have found really really helpful has been in what sort of the healing spaces have put into a category of called shadow work, and the way that yes. I would see that related to what we've been talking about is. Where am I feeling judgment? Where am I feeling activation? Where am I feeling a, a type of emotion I might have categorized as negative? And I'm seeing something about myself or about the world that I think needs to change. And as soon as I have that, I have a guidepost. And then I say, oh my gosh, wait, okay, I'm feeling angry because something someone said or something someone did. And then getting curious and leading actually myself through a self inquiry of questions and curiosity around what is this anger trying to tell me? What is the care? What do I care about so much that energy is rushing through my body because I care about something so much? And once I can uncover the care behind the anger, then I actually have, oh, purpose. I have something that I'm here on earth to bring into the world that is unique, that I can bring, that, I, that is part of my diversity that's of here as a human to actually bring as an additive value to any context or any setting, especially in teamwork. And so I feel like the, the times we feel tempted to blame or, we, or judge is our biggest opportunity. And a lot of those show up when polarity is presenting as tension in our yeah. body. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's related to and you and I, you know, I've talked to, oh, since we've known each other about the, the in my phrasing here, the gift of triggering, the gift of being triggered, because it shows you where you still have things to work on. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean we should be insensitive. I'm not saying that. I'm you know to other people's you know trauma responses and stuff, but to minimize triggering, to deny triggering is to deny healing, to not deny the opportunity to self inquiry of examining yourself of why does this bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, around sovereignty, a word that you use, or autonomy, which 
you know, we, we live in a society in the United States that's um, rampantly codependent on all various kinds of forms and within relationships, within identities, within tribal labels, et cetera, et cetera. And so my definition of self-inquiry is essentially the, it's, it's, it's um, self-inquiry is the examination of what's true and not true within your being. So I think it's a, it's a type of truth seeking. And when, when I, you know, and I would say self-inquiry is part of the consciousness process, what I would consider either, it could be mental consciousness, spiritual consciousness, social consciousness. You gotta, you gotta start with you. Um, and it's a common thing from spirit, you know, the spiritual masters of Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad, Gandhi, they all said, you got to start within your own self. And the starting point, I think that I would look at is, but I'll say two here. One is, um, what am I, what, uh, what social labels have I adopted in order to form an identity? Um, I think that but when we start to realize that a lot of our identity is what other people told us we were, then we can see that we don't have autonomy and that there's this sort of holographic self that we need to dismantle, which is extremely painful to do, but it needs to be done in order for the true self to emerge. And I think the, the second one is, what do I believe, what do I no longer believe? And we carry around belief systems like like old bones, like boxes of bones, and we carry them around with us and we reassemble them when it's when we feel like it's necessary. And I think religion, especially institutionalized religion, encourages this um, type of, you know, I don't believe this anymore, but I don't know, I have these bones, so I don't know what else to do with them. And once you know who you are and your true self and you understand that you have intrinsic beliefs, and this is a lot of the coaching that I do with people with their personal brand is, what you intrinsically or what's what you believe that's part of your hardwiring of your soul that you didn't adopt, that then you can venture out into the world and you can lead. You can lead in a very, very different way. You can create in a very, very different way. You can experience life in a very, very different way because you're not pinging against other people and creating dissonance or, or unhealthy tension um, where everyone is a threat to the thing that to the constructed identity you've created and everyone is a threat to the bones that you're carrying around. You realize that in most cases, most people are not a threat. They're just hurt people doing hurtful things. Um, yeah. And it puts you in a place of power to be able to do that power. And, and I don't mean in the sense of like hierarchical power, but almost like spiritual power to be able to, quoting Jesus, turn the other cheek um, when necessary. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And um, also in the book, that's kind of like an aspect of like breaking down the identity complexes that yeah. we have constructed and celebrating an identity is different than defending an identity. And I think that's where the judgment and the blame comes. And it's like, oh, if, if I feel tempted to blame or judge someone, what aspect is of my identity feels threatened? And does that mean I've overly identified and think I am something other than my core essence, other than my worth. And therefore I actually am relating to an aspect of my identity in a way that's becoming defensive and, uh, and, in, in, and, you know, helping me not access my core worth. And so therefore I can feel that contrast and step further into my wholeness and celebrate the distinction of the identity simultaneously. So I relate to it differently. And it's interesting. We're talking about um, the cultures in the United States. It's um, one, you know, our, the, the deep, dark subconscious of shadow work can be an illuminating 
aspect of self-inquiry. And also there's incredibly amazing things within the subconscious too, like understanding I have white skin and my lineage came from whales. Mm-hmm. And pre-colonial Europe, they had systems of deep esoteric healing. The Celtic cauldrons were a part of how white bodies were feeling energy systems in their body, like three cauldrons in my core system. And so actually digging into the self-inquiry around, oh, where does my lineage come from in my the uh, DNA of my body that, yes. you know, has led me into not only just trauma that I came from, from being disconnected to that lineage, but also the incredible access I have to a whole world of, of deep um, energetic systems that I can just reconnect with because it's part of my natural body. And so being able to actually bring those cultures alive into this moment in today that actually I'm not that detached if I inquire and feel. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, well, I think we could go on and on, but for the sake of uh, the format, we'll go ahead and end there. As I mentioned, I'll, I'll link to your, your book, which is amazing. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's kind of like the next read. I think if if someone is, I'll put it this way, you know, with spiral, dyna- spiral dynamics of me, we, everyone, and the work that Virginia and I are doing with Massive is sort of coaching business leaders that are in that we to everyone phase. Um, your book, Gareth, is the is the book, almost like a guidebook for what we would call social consciousness, um, which is, you know, you know, this, this sort of awareness of self and the awareness of others in a way, though, that is presented not as just getting along, but as a way of leading. Mm-hmm. And so highly recommend that. And then um, your um, your workshop that you deliver to companies um, that I inc- highly encourage people, if you are a, a leader in an organization and you want to create your, or to, you know, to nurture creative polarity in your team and you want to be more innovative, you want more velocity in the way that you're doing things bring Gareth in to have her do her thing. Um, it's mind blowing. So thank you so much for being on the third way. And I'm, I know we'll have many conversations that won't be recorded ahead of us. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Justin. It's such, it's so great to be here. And I really appreciate just dialogue with you and exploration. And I look forward to more ahead too. Awesome. Thanks.